Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 8 of the program. And before I bring on my wonderful guest this week, I want to just remind listeners, and I said it last week and I say it again, I apologize to those of you who are now hearing this for the eighth time or the seventh time or however long you've been listening to this show, but um, I just want to reiterate for the new listeners that Counterpunch is truly independent media. Counterpunch Radio is a truly independent podcast. What we're trying to do here is really provide uh, critical analysis from the left, but from an alternative perspective, one that really stands apart from what I call the controlled left and the pseudo-alternative left and all of these other permutations of all of the fakers and others who find any excuse to call themselves leftists and yet be supplicants to power. But Counterpunch somehow is not part of that. Counterpunch is really independent. And with that in mind, I think that what we're doing here with this project is really important. And so what we ask is that if you're enjoying Counterpunch Radio, if you enjoy Counterpunch Online, think about becoming a subscriber to the print magazine. Um, It's a worthwhile thing just because you'll get the magazine, because you'll be able to follow along with all of the amazing contributors, all of the amazing columnists. You'll find all kinds of interesting analysis in the magazine, but you'll also be financially supporting this project. And I think that's equally important if you can do so. Um, Of course, you can follow Counterpunch on the online presence, the website, and uh, you're obviously listening to Counterpunch Radio. And I mentioned it last week, and I want to reiterate this point as well. One other way that you can support what we're doing here is by giving us a positive review on iTunes. You know, it, you'd be amazed how important those reviews are. Um, they they push the podcast up the lists. They bring it to more people's attention. So uh, think about doing that as well and sharing it, of course, with your friends and uh, everyone that you think needs to hear this perspective. And so with that being said, speaking of alternative narratives and alternative perspectives that come from the left, I have with me my guest this week who is also involved in a very similar project providing that counter narrative from the left. It is uh, Glenn Ford of the Black Agenda Report. Now, if you're not following Black Agenda Report, you're missing, I think, some of the best analysis, political analysis in general, and especially, of course, political analysis from the black left. I think that um, when I first came across Black Agenda, I mean, it was an eye-opener because this was already years ago at this point, and here was critical analysis, critical of Obama, critical of an entire segment of the left that really, it almost doesn't really exist. And so, you know, I've I've known Glenn for a while now. He and I have talked many times, and I'm, I'm really happy to have him on the program. Um, Glenn Ford, he is the executive editor of Black Agenda Report, the host of Black Agenda Radio, um, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, all that out of the way. Glenn Ford, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Oh, thanks for the opportunity, Eric. Um, so there's so much that we really need to discuss, and I, gosh, I mean, look, there's so many things happening all at once. I mean, b- when we first talked back in, I guess that was 2012, I don't know that we really knew that there would be, or when there would be Ferguson's, when there would be Baltimore's, when there would be all of these um, upsurges. And I think with all of that having happened, there's so much to discuss, but I want to focus in on something that you've just written in the last 48 hours, a very, very important article. Everyone needs to read it, entitled Tamir Rice and the Meaning of No Justice, No peace. And um, in case people haven't come across the article yet, how about we start by just kind of outlining what your thesis in that article was and what you really wanted to get across to your readers? 
Well, we spend the first part of the article talking about the slogan, No Justice, No Peace, uh, which is a wonderful uh, slogan and uh, I think would be uh, an organizing principle of a movement uh, if people really took the implications uh, of no justice, no peace uh, seriously. Uh, we talk about uh, the movement now being dubbed uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, how that happened, uh, and, 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 and how movements, uh, through, through their own dynamic, uh, actually wind up naming themselves. Uh, and when this movement, if it's able to sustain itself, uh, comes up with a name that is worthy of a movement, uh, it will be a surprise, just like those surprises you were referring to uh, earlier. Uh, Ferguson was a surprise. Baltimore is a surprise. Believe me, uh, all of the great events of history are surprises. Yeah, and it's interesting that we're that we're looking on it now because I mean they're they're very recent phenomenon, but really um if you talk about these upsurges of, you know, what what the media would like to call rioting or violence or whatever, but what I think would probably more correctly be called insurrections or rebellions, when you're thinking about them, you have to sort of think about them in a political context and with a political content. And I think that context and content, as it were, is sort of removed from the narrative. So why don't we place it a little bit in its political context? What is the meaning of these upsurges and, and why do they? Why are they important for our analysis uh, uh, from a broad perspective? Well, you know, when when people witness uh, an atrocity, the the brutal murder of a young uh, person, of course they are appalled. Of course they are angry, uh, and the first reaction is to cry out about the specific injustice. And so we saw in Ferguson uh, that the young people uh, who launched uh, the, the, the movement that we, that we now call Black Lives Matter and will hopefully evolve into something else, those young people, many of them uh, were friends of of Michael Brown, uh, their reaction was to hold up uh, placards and uh, chant the slogan, hands up, don't shoot, uh, because that was the most uh, immediate uh, reaction. Uh, the brother had his hands up. You shouldn't have shot him. Uh, hands up, don't, don't shoot, of course, uh, is a kind of too, too well is too passive a slogan uh, for a movement uh, but it but it actually was appropriate and we and we can't question it uh, because the people who knew and loved Mike Brown came up with it and it worked for them uh, at at that time and and their protest is what kicked off uh, this campaign uh, this emerging it's emerging movement uh, black lives matter was a hashtag uh, by a group of people who came together uh, they say uh, uh, after George Zimmerman was uh, uh, acquitted of the of the murder of of, of Trayvon Martin, uh, and so with the you know the thing about this this movement as opposed to the one two generations ago uh, is that it's flooded with social media, and so the hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, became quite an attractive one. Uh, it was was tweeted and retweeted, uh, and became became uh, the de facto uh, title uh, of this of this of, of this of this protest uh, black lives matter uh, does not 
really em- embody any substantial political content. Uh, it doesn't tell us uh, where to go, but it was the reaction of large groups of people who were focusing on Michael Brown's murder and and Eric Garner's murder and and the the never ending it seems drumbeat of of atrocities against black people. Uh, and the reaction was to affirm that black lives matter, or uh, to say that we're determined to create a situation in which black lives really do matter as much as other people's lives. So this is not a criticism of of black lives matter uh, as as being the de facto uh, slogan. Uh, it, it it makes uh, perfect sense for the time that uh, for that it that it entered, uh, but a movement. Uh, once it becomes uh, conscious of itself, once uh, the actors uh, ask each other the inevitable question, uh, how do we, uh, how, where are we going and what is this about, uh, the, the movement will create uh, its own, its, its, it will na- rename uh, itself based upon uh, its practice uh, and its goals. Uh, I think that the that the the logic of this movement, this reaction initially uh, to police atrocities, is black self determination, uh, and that the fact that it has gone up against uh, the 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 police uh, means that we are now in a confrontation uh, with the state which is some very, very serious business and brings us in a way uh, to the point where the last movement uh, two generations ago left off, uh, the point where we challenge uh, the, the actual uh, structures of, 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 gover- of governance uh, and, and the forces that, are, uh, that those structures are protecting. Well, that's that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, you just reminded me when you were just when when you were saying that um, I had a few weeks ago, I had Yvette Carnell of, um, you know, wonderful, wonderful writer, wonderful um, media personality, um, breakingbrown.com, of course. And uh, she has a lot of things to say about this. And one of the things that we discussed was this issue of um the bestial nature of black lives and of and of black human beings that they are made into a sort of a subhuman role in a lot of these power relationships that we're that we're talking about and so in in some ways black lives matter seems to me an affirmation of their their humanity that they're not subhumans but rather that they are humans that they are not beasts that they are to be treated in a certain kind of way and of course that's important and none nobody wants to criticize that or denigrate that at the same time, I think the question that you're really asking is, is it enough for the state, for the powers that be to simply recognize blacks as humans or must they recognize something far more profound? Well, actually, the Constitution, as amended, does recognize us as humans. Uh, But what does that matter? That's just a piece of paper. Uh, In practice, uh, the the larger uh, society uh, and and the organs of government uh, treat us as beasts. Uh, we remember that uh, famous uh, placard uh, that gave mute 
but poignant uh, testimony uh, uh, from the Memphis uh, garbage worker uh, that Dr. Martin Luther King came to Memphis to, uh, to assist. Uh, the placard said simply, I am a man. Uh, that was an aff- affirmation of the uh, of the garbage workers' uh, humanity. Uh, but saying I am a man and getting a contract are two different things. Uh, and saying Black Lives Matter and getting Black community control of the police are two different things. Uh, as as this movement uh, decides how it's going uh, to. Uh, to effect, create the conditions in which uh, uh, the state will recognize black folks' humanity uh, 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 in, that, in that process, we'll, we'll get a name for this movement. Yeah, and the thing that I'm the thing that I find particularly interesting about examining it from this perspective is this question, and and again, I mean, it's what you're raising in the article there, the the question of no justice, no peace. But what does no peace even really mean? Because if you think about it, on the one hand, it it makes perfect sense. It's got a historical cachet to it. There's a there's a long uh, historical tradition, and I think it's important for the movement today to be connecting back to those previous generations. But at the same time, is there really no peace? Because from 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 my perspective, as you know, whether we're talking Occupy Wall Street, whether we're talking the Black Lives Matter movement, whatever, you know, what have you, um, this question of uh, civil disobedience, this question of um, really kind of disrupting the peace. I think it's it's debatable. I mean, is that really happening when you simply are stopping traffic for 20 minutes or you're marching down Broadway in New York City or what have you? Is that really a disruption of the peace or are those merely gestures? I mean, you know, this is something that I personally have struggled uh, with in terms of political movements in general. And I think this is something that the Black Lives Matter movement or whatever this movement's going to become has to really examine. What does it mean to disrupt the peace. No justice, no peace uh, comes directly out of the uh, philosophy of direct action. Uh, that was Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, philosophy. Direct action uh, basically says uh, that the oppressed uh, live in a state of crisis. Uh, and what the movement is supposed to do uh, is is to speak for the oppressed and tell those in power uh, that if the crisis uh, that they have inflicted upon oppressed folk, upon black folk, uh, is not alleviated, uh, then the movement will do everything it can to make the crisis not limited to black people, but general for society. That is the price that the powerful will have to pay for continued social peace uh, is to provide justice. And if they don't, uh, then the heat will be turned up by the movement uh, to make the society and those in power uh, scream uh, so that uh, in this uh, through this crisis uh, the, the the political equation uh, will be altered, and uh, the goal is that concessions that those in power uh, would never have considered uh, making uh, before. Uh, the the general crisis uh, was was brought about. Uh, those those concessions uh, then become uh, something that the that they that will be considered. I'll give you an example. Uh, in 1970 71, 
President Richard Nixon uh, was seriously considering uh, a national minimum uh, income for all Americans uh, that is doing away with means tested welfare as we knew it uh, and guaranteeing uh, all uh, Americans a, a decent uh, income, whether they were working uh, or not. Uh, that was the result of a whole decade of crises uh, that the uh, rulers of, of, of America faced with cities uh, burning and uh, the United States held up to ridicule and scorn in the world as some kind of paragon of, of democracy. How could you be a paragon of democracy when your black folks are revolting in a hundred cities? Uh, but after those, uh, th those uh, rebellions, uh, subsided, we don't hear, we didn't hear anymore uh, uh, about a guaranteed uh, national minimum income. Uh, and in fact, if, it, if any Democrat, including Bernie Sanders, uh, proposed it, uh, he'd be called uh, nuts uh, and a Bolshevik uh, in, today's, in today's politics. Uh, so, so direct action uh, aim, aims to create uh, pain uh, as the price uh, that power pays for not uh, providing justice. Uh, Dr. King, of course, uh, added his own personal prohibition against violence. Uh, but direct action, the, the, the philosophy, uh, works whether you prohibit violence or not. And I think if you combine Dr. King's direct action uh, with Malcolm X's by any means necessary, uh, you have a formula for the kind of movement that we need. Oh, exactly right. And I think that there's a, a dialectical sort of relationship here, because on the one hand, what what you're talking about is creating the circumstances, creating the conditions in which you force concessions, meaning that you force the establishment, the state to provide uh, something or to allow for something, and at the same time, seizing that something. And this is this is, I think, the the, the next step, the logical step that is oftentimes missed in a lot of these discussions about the movement how do how do communities especially of course communities of color how do they seize not only seize the initiative that's an abstraction but i mean literally seizing the space whether we're talking about abandoned buildings whether we're talking about seizing their public schools whether we're talking about any of the community institutions i mean you look at detroit you look at camden new jersey you look at many of these predominantly black cities and there is not only an empty and an economic despair and a political sort of subjugation, there is this complete lack of any, um, call it indigenous uh, uh, control. So how, how does this happen? How do they seize these spaces and remake them for themselves rather than simply trying to get the concessions only out of the state? We will not get the concessions from the state uh, that at a minimum satisfy uh, our demands for justice unless, at least in selected places, uh, we are able to render uh, the cities ungovernable. Uh, that is to say, uh, you will not be able to govern in, in these cities uh, unless you uh, meet uh, our, our demands. Now, now, what is the formula for doing that? Uh, I don't have one. Uh, off the top of my head, and no one else does does either. Uh, that that is that is what 
strategizing strategy and tactics in the movement is all about. Uh, clearly, uh, it will not be this will not be accomplished uh, by solely legal means alone. Uh, but in in a real sense, uh, when when you challenge uh, the legitimacy of the state, and I think that is what this movement is doing, even if people uh, aren't consciously doing that when you challenge the legitimacy of the state uh you you are uh you are balanced at least uh right at the line of illegality uh all already uh and can be declared illegal whenever the state uh, decides to do so if when we if we're talking about black community control of police uh through mechanisms that do not involve those that we presently have. That is, you elect a mayor and then the mayor hires a police chief. And if the mayor is black, that's called black community control of the police. Well, we know uh, that that uh, does not satisfy our minimal demands. We we, we have black uh, police chiefs and black mayors uh, all across the country uh, in places that rack up the highest uh, the highest rates of of police murder of of civilians. Uh, no, we're talking we're talking about uh, uh, claiming uh, a a legal and sovereign uh, space at the expense of some of the sovereignty of the state. When you when we, when you say that we don't we don't want your police in our community, you you are saying uh, to the state uh, that. Uh, we reject your governance, and so we have to uh, make a a new kind of compact with you. Uh, the terms of which uh, we now need to negotiate. Uh, you're you're biting and eating into uh, their sovereignty. Uh, you you are messing uh, with the the whole reason for there being a state, uh, and, and that's some very dangerous stuff. And I wouldn't be glib and flip enough uh, to to uh, to try to offer some kind of of formula or menu or uh, step uh, one two three <laughs> ten step program yeah. uh, for achieving that. No, I, I don't think that that's, and I'm certainly not asking for that. I guess I was I'm going in the direction that you're talking about, and that is this this the seizure of control from the state, because exactly as you said, look. The, all of this has erupted in the time of the quote-unquote first black president, right? All of this has erupted at a time in which you don't have some right-wing uh, reactionary president in the White House, at a time in which supposedly, in theory, this society was changing, and yet all of these things are happening. I mean, literally, if you're on, if you're online, if you're on Facebook, I'm sure your timeline is flooded with video after video brutalizing uh, of, of young black people, of, of elderly elderly, of whomever. I mean, this is an endemic problem that has been there for uh, for a long, long time, but now it is in some ways out in the open. And so what I want to what I want to talk about before we head into break here, and this is something that you and I have discussed a number of times. There is a historical tradition of exactly what you've talked about of challenging the state of of challenging the very sovereignty of of these communities and the relationship between them and the authorities. And of course, the Black Panther movement of the of the late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies. I mean, that is a very good historical antecedent to the, some of the things that we're talking 
talking about here. So one of the elements that they were um, sort of interested in is the creation of parallel institutions, parallel institutions, whether you're talking about feeding of children, whether you're talking about self-defense of the communities or what have you. I think that that's an important subject that a lot of people really kind of dance around for whatever reasons, perhaps liberal delusions or otherwise. Yes, when you have rendered the city ungovernable, and that is not going to be done uh, by above-ground, well-disciplined demonstrators, although that certainly will play a major role. You know, the, the, the real uh, rendering of cities un- ungovernable is, done, is accomplished by folks uh, in the street who are uh, not so easily uh, uh, disciplined. Uh, when when you do that, what and and are in a position uh, to demand uh, some political space and some concessions, are you ready uh, to patrol your own streets? Are you ready uh, to, at a minimum, say, well, we want to accompany your police patrols uh, as uh, uh, to make sure? Uh, that they behave uh, correctly. Uh, if if you have not done uh, the kind of community organizing work where you can credibly um, at least make a contribution to the policing of these these area, these these parts of the city that uh, black folks have made ungovernable, <laughs> uh, uh, then then you're in trouble. Uh, and you won't be able to capitalize on 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 the uh, on the on the retreat uh, of, of excuse me on the weakness uh, of the state. Uh, so we have to think in in, in terms of uh, cop watches, uh, getting people uh, uh, acclimated uh, to not only watching cops but to uh, uh, taking responsibility uh, for the behavior. Of, of regular citizens in the streets, uh, that is, uh, neighborhood watches. I know that sounds lame and boring, uh, but it's not. If you're talking uh, uh, about uh, getting rid of the, the hostile occupation force and substituting uh, something else, uh, we have to talk about uh, uh, all kinds of, of, of community organizations uh, and and gearing their activities uh, towards the security of the community, uh, as well as all the other things that the various uh, groups groups do. We, we really need to be serious uh, about organizing a, a community for its own uh, security and sustenance if we're talking about uh, getting uh, the, the hostile state off of our back. Uh, if we're saying that we don't want the state to take responsibility for us uh, because the uh, police as constituted are not fit uh, to for that function, th- then it's, we're obligated uh, to at least begin the process of getting a proto kind of security force, whether we want to call it police uh, or not. Absolutely. Uh, let's take a break. But um, before we do, I just want to I just want to point something out. One thing that you were getting at, Glenn, and I think that this is really um, a vital issue to talk about and also one that might be somewhat, you know, <laughs> passe, let's let's call it. Um, 
I think that what you're talking about is revolutionary action. I mean, really, when you're talking about challenging the state, you're talking about challenging the military-industrial complex, you're talking about challenging the very nature of the surveillance state, of the police state. I mean, this is, in this time, in in this place, this is revolutionary action that you're referring to. And that's what you mean when you say it's not all going to be, you know, well-organized and, and purely legal demonstration. Revolutions are never clean. When you say cops out of our community, whether you say killer cops or just cops, uh, and you intend uh, for them to uh, retreat uh, and, and not to be uh, the occupiers, uh, you, must, uh, uh, you must be prepared uh, to provide the security yourself. And if you're not, uh, then... Uh, the, the, the whatever you gain is not sustainable, that the folks in the community will start, uh, will, will invite the cops back. If, if you have not placed some kind of security, uh, substituted the, some kind of security uh, for the occupiers who have retreated. And we've seen them re- retreat. In fact, that's, that's the typical uh, pattern uh, when they can uh, no longer uh, ma- maintain uh, 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 law and order as, as they once did because the people uh, rebel. They withdraw uh, typically. What happens then? Uh, is it in our interest that they stay withdrawn? Uh, it's really not if we can't provide some kind of measure of safety uh, for the folks who are in those neighborhoods. Definitely, definitely. I totally agree. All right, let's take a break. We'll be back on the other side of the break with Glenn Ford. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. We'll be right back. Here on Counterpunch Radio, I'm chatting with Glenn Ford again. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, Glenn is the executive editor of Black Agenda Report. Um, this is a go-to site for me. This is one of those uh, news outlets that I follow regularly. I highly recommend that you do the same as well. Of course, also Counterpunch, <laughs> if I could uh, replug the um, the project here. But in any event, um, Glenn, we were talking about revolutionary action, essentially ta- the seizure.
seizure of power, the seizure of community control. And I think that all of this is is really important. But there's another element to this. And I think that it is a fundamental part of any attempt to do all of the things that we've talked about. And that is the question of leadership. And I know that it is, you know, in many ways, sort of an unpopular notion, especially among younger generation of activists who sort of, um, whether they cut their teeth with Occupy or whether they have, uh, let's call it more uh, decentralized and horizontalist notions of organizing. But I think that leadership is really critical here. And I don't know that you can necessarily have a cohesive movement that that goes to the degree uh, of challenging the state that you and I have been talking about, unless you have leadership. So before we can even discuss uh, what leadership might look like in the future. Let's talk about the fact that there is no leadership now. One of those terms that you've coined and popularized is the black misleadership class. And I think that it is precisely the pernicious effect of that class and their white collaborators, of course, that really has created this void in leadership that is so desperately needing to be filled. You know, can I can I talk about uh, something I think is really important before uh, tackling my favorite subject, the black misleadership class, and and that, and, that, and I, I want to make a comparison here uh, between uh, today and and the previous uh, uh, mass movement. Uh, you were talking about leadership and how do how do we uh, generate uh, uh, or incubate uh, leadership? In hindsight. Uh, the folks uh, who who we recognize as leaders in the mid '60s, around uh, 1965, uh, were incubated. Uh, they had years to develop uh, their worldview as well as very necessary uh, leadership and organizing skills, uh, because the the civil rights movement, which re- preceded the Black Power movement. Uh, usually is dated to 1955, uh, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, the, 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 the great awakening uh, that occurred in the years after that. Uh, so you have uh, SNCC in the early 60s uh, and, and Stokely, Stokely Carmichael and other types like Julian Bond, all young people uh, uh, are engaged uh, with with SNCC uh, doing a new and novel kind of grassroots uh, people-to-people uh, organizing, uh, figuring out what kind of, of organizational uh, methods uh, worked uh, in rural and, and urban uh, black America, and spending years developing literally hundreds of folks who would be future cadre uh, for uh, the movement during that process. Uh, so we don't, we, the, the leadership roster that we look at at 65 and 66 didn't just uh, emerge uh, full-blown <laughs> uh, in that period. It was incubated uh, by, by previous uh, um, uh, organizational efforts. We can't duplicate that. And the crisis is on us now. And the imperative uh, to to sustain this this movement that is directed against the police and therefore the state uh, uh, is 
that that is uh, has has what they what they describe as the urgency of now, mm-hmm. and we don't have years to cultivate properly uh, a, a a a a a cadre uh, of potential uh, leaders. Uh, we have to move with what we've got. Uh, and and that's my comment on what about the leadership. Uh, it would be great if if uh, over the last uh, decade uh, we had had uh, progressive uh, left uh, trans- transformation seeking uh, black organizations uh, that were involving hundreds if not thousands. Uh, of young people uh, in activities that would have uh, broadened their worldview uh, and prepared them uh, for a monument for a monumental task of challenging uh, the U.S. imperial state, uh, but we 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 don't have we didn't have that luxury. Uh, we have what we got. I think that's a really important point, Glenn. The fact of the matter is that leadership doesn't just, uh, you know, come out of a vacuum. I think that there is a long process that really has to be gone through. And I think that this is an important point to be considering in terms of the current movement, because, of course, the younger people who are involved in this movement, who are active in the movement, and who, to a large extent, are really leading this movement to whatever extent leadership exists, um, they're a product of a very different set of socioeconomic circumstances, whether you want to talk about the lasting impact of the mass incarceration and the prison state, the prison industrial complex, the endemic unemployment, and all of the other uh, uh, problems that we associate with the contemporary, you know, uh, urban inner city, you know, uh, uh, landscape. I think that a lot of that is really has an impact on the way in which leadership would emerge. So, I mean, what do you think about that characterization? And to what extent do you think that this current generation is in some sense behind their antecedents of the 60s and 70s? Well, the most important factor there is that this generation has no models. And in fact, indeed, the generation that became before them had no models. That is, no models they experienced because we have not had a grassroots uh, movement. We have not had independent black politics uh, since oh the mid nineteen seventies. That's two generations, uh, and so of course uh, young people are handicapped in their vision because they have not uh, seen uh, folks acting independently. Certainly not acting independently and in a radical manner uh, ever. Um, uh, we also have a situation in, in, in that no one in the world has ever encountered, and that is we live in a state, uh, an, uh, an imperial state, in which there is uh, total hegemony uh, of of the bourgeoisie, <laughs> and specifically of finance capital in, yeah. in, in this case. Uh, and, and they have had uh, total hegemony uh, over the discourse. Uh, for a very long time, uh, a- a- and so what? What is a a political uh, dialogue? I-, I know that sounds like a simplistic, stupid question, but I'm serious about it. I, I don't think people have models for how politics is to be uh, conducted. Uh, in the the '60s was uh, such a wondrously healthy and productive period because. 
people were serious about conducting politics, uh, serious about arguing with each other over the question of of what is to uh, be done. That model doesn't exist uh, for these young people. Uh, I they don't have an experience even in opposing each other uh, with ideas uh, on the field of struggle. Uh, so there are a lot of handicaps here, and uh, well, that, but that is the that is the deck the, the, that is the hand we've been dealt. I think so too, and you know, I mean, there's a number of um, uh, circumstances I think that play into that. I mean, look, simply simply put, the the fact that there is no international socialist movement or communist movement, I think that that plays into a lot of this. I think that the fact that you had, um, you know, resistance movements, whether you were talking about in Vietnam or whether you were talking about, you know, uh, Maoist movements or what have you, that were vibrant and that were internationalized that in many ways played a very uh, important role in influencing a lot of the politics of that period. I mean, I think it was, uh, I don't remember who, which of the, which of the Black Panthers said it, maybe it was Stokely Carmichael, uh, who said that uh, no Black Panther was without a copy of Franz Fanon, you know, and I think that that understanding, that international perspective, that is also sorely lacking today. And because of that, in many senses, I think just as you said, there is a very real political ideological and discursive handicap. And in the black community, all politics, virtually all politics, uh, has taken place in one form or another within the Democratic Party uh, since about 1970. So that our civic organizations are actually annexes of the Democratic Party. So it's not just that virtually all of our elected officials are Democrats, uh, but the NAACP is an annex of the Democratic Party, and so is the Urban League, and so is so is what's left of the SCLC. Certainly, Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Al Sharpton is is the mercenary pit bull for power, uh, you know. And Jesse Jackson's uh, the remnants of his organization. He uh, is a Democratic uh, operative. So the landscape is just is just covered, saturated uh, with. Democrats uh, to to the point that a a young person uh, would 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 not be uh, uh, mistaken uh, to to think or, or could not be could, could not be criticized for thinking uh, that all politics uh, was electoral and all black politics was democratic. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that hegemony of the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party machine within these uh, within these communities, I think that this is one of those things that uh, not only does it have to be challenged, I think that it has to be in some sense systematically dismantled. And I frankly, and I don't mean to sound overly cynical or fatalistic about it, but I don't see that that system, that political machine is going to be dismantled in any uh, orderly sense. I don't think it's going to be dismantled in an electoral sense. And I certainly don't think that, you know, a small marginal third party is necessarily going to be able to achieve that, at least through the, uh, let's call it the electoral process. And so that brings us back to what we were talking about before the break, that really what we're left with is the only alternative being some form of revolutionary politics and revolutionary struggle. And this is, in my mind, that's the direction that this movement really needs to be heading 
in. And even if those ideological and philosophical and theoretical conversations are only beginning to happen now, so much the better for the movement in the long run. The Democratic Party's tentacles, which are so deep and pervasive in the black community uh, and which are connected to directly to Wall Street, uh, cannot be swept away except by a strong, militant movement of uh, on the streets uh, and the individuals, these personalities uh, who are attached to the Democratic Party uh, can only be uh, disposed of uh, by the people's revulsion at their opposition to the movement. That is, the people are become angry at uh, these Democratic operatives uh, because of how they position themselves vis-a-vis the movement. So that a Sharpton is 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 clearly. Uh, diminished uh, in June of 2015 from his status in the black community in June of 2014 uh, because he has so clearly, so obviously, so transparently uh, been acting as the pit bull or the lap dog uh, for the administration uh, in the context of this emerging uh, movement. So the movement, the the, the movement and their behavior, their reaction to the movement uh, is what uh, begins uh, their, the the dismantling uh, of of those structures in terms of, of the credibility that they have in the community. Oh, I, I totally agree. But now let's let's just not to necessarily play devil's advocate, but let's try to walk through this for a second. Okay, so we have an election in 2016. Let's assume whether it's Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush or whomever. Good lord, you know. I mean, it's it's a reactionary it's a reactionary presidency led most likely by you know a white man or a white woman. And then you have whether four years later or eight years later, are we then looking at hope and change redux with like a Cory Booker or something or or someone similar to that? And are we simply going to then go through a repeat of this exact same cycle that we've just gone through for eight years? I mean, I know Black Agenda Report has been on the sort of the forefront of hammering about who Booker is and how he fits into this black misleadership class. But I wonder, is there any way to derail what seems like a, a vicious cycle of black misleaders? That the movement has to uh, be more compelling than the election, uh, or else the the movement will be suffocated by the election. Uh, you know, Occupy uh, uh, was uh, came came to an end through a combination of repression and co-optation, uh, and and it, the co-optation uh, end of that was was made uh, much easier, much more efficient by the fact that uh, uh, the Occupy movement occurred right at the beginning uh, of an election year. Uh, And uh, Occupy uh, was not as interesting to masses of people as the election was. Uh, We have to make our movement more interesting uh, to the folks who are directly uh, affected by it, and we're talking about people who uh, we're talking about a movement against the police, and that and that means uh, it affects everybody. We have to make that movement more interesting than the election. 
And yeah. I think that's I think that's doable. Oh, I, I agree with you. But again, I think that what you've seen and look, I can point to a number of examples even recently. What you've seen is that those um, those individual leaders who do emerge, whether they're leaders on the ground or whether they're purely uh, ideological and philosophical leaders, they are assaulted by members of this misleadership class and of their lapdogs. I'm, of course, thinking in my mind specifically of the recent uh, um, you know, let's call it attempted takedown of Cornell West by uh, by Mr. Dyson. And um, I think that that is a good example of one of the ways in which this class is operating in order to prevent exactly what you're talking about, in order to prevent that movement from having leadership and having a direction that breaks away from this political machine. Actually, the biggest weapon they have, the most efficient one, the most dangerous one they have, uh, is uh, to co-opt uh, these these young folks who are emerging in leadership positions, who are uh, in their uh, early 20s, uh, intelligent, articulate. Uh, they're being hired yes. uh, by foundations, uh, the, the whole NGO <laughs> juggernaut. Yep. They're picking them off. Who can blame young folks who, uh, uh, in, in this kind of job market, <laughs> uh, for for not uh, uh, sticking with the poverty of movement work <laughs> when they're being offered uh, uh, a comfortable position by very friendly talking liberal uh, speaking uh, uh, potential employers? Uh, and and they are doing it now. They are poaching uh, some of the best and brightest of the movement as we speak. Exactly. And so, again, I mean, I think that this comes back to, well, on the one hand, that's true. And certainly I think that there's a very, that, that's a very real trend. At the same time, you know, I, I spoke a few, um, I guess a couple of months ago now with our mutual friend, Tony Montero, and we were talking about precisely this issue of, of leadership. And, and I think that one of these things is that there needs to be some either figure or group or even idea around which the movement can coalesce and that that, and that would provide leadership. And I think that one of those would be, and I know that um, maybe this is far-fetched, but somebody like a Mumia Abu-Jamal, and I think this is one of the reasons why people like Mumia are under attack and are being, let's call it, extrajudicially assassinated in various forms, because imagine what would happen to a movement like Black Lives Matter if somebody like Mumia were on the streets rallying the troops. Yes, and, you know, there are lots of young uh, people, uh, not enough because we, we don't have enough potential cadre uh, at all, but there are lots of young people who are immersing uh, themselves, uh, often with the guidance of older heads uh, in the, 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 the literature and lore uh, of previous uh, social uh, movements who, who do know who France Fanon is, or at least have recently found out, uh, who can put Mumia Abu-Jamal in his proper context mm -hmm. uh, along uh, and understand who uh, Mumia really is. Uh, 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 th these, these things, these are, are happening, uh, not on the scale uh, uh, that... Uh, would give us uh, the the kind of of cadre uh, that a previous movement had uh, at the time that it uh, decided to confront the state, uh, but it's not 
totally a desert out there. Exactly. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit um, before before this interview about this issue of direct action. And I, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I want to touch on it very briefly. You know, on the one hand, we have this mythology of, of, of Dr. King, right? And, and Dr. King is like the black Gandhi or something like this, you know, that there was, it was always, you know, turn the other cheek, like some sort of, you know, second coming of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, I think people are quick to forget some of the people who were around Dr. King, people who were not always talking about nonviolence, who were prepared to defend themselves and to defend their movement by force of arms when it was necessary from various forces. And I think that that is an important question for the movement and for these communities to be considering when you're talking about community policing and community control and, and defending communities. To a large extent, there comes this question of defending them by force. And I think that this is something that needs to be tackled. Yes, and you know this dichotomy between violence and non-violence—it's—it's uh, uh, it's really quite quite artificial. Uh, it is true that Dr. King had a a, a moral uh, position uh, uh, that that forbid him to engage uh, in violence, but you know he said in 1967 uh, that he found it difficult to tell uh, young ghetto youth not to engage in violence uh, when the United States uh, government was the greatest purveyor of violence uh, in the world. And and in fact, uh, it was understood operationally uh, that the the non-violent folks uh, were given concessions uh, so as to not to have to deal with folks who were thought to be uh, less nonviolent. Yep. Uh, and everybody un- understood uh, how, how that worked. It's, it's really a false issue. And I think it obscures what Dr. King's direct action philosophy really was about, which, as we discussed before, was about creating a, Christ, a, a crisis, of making the, the society and the ruling powers a scream, making them say, uncle, uh, and th- th- that is uh, committing a kind of, of, of violence to the state because of the violence that's being uh, done to us. Uh, and and there's, 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 there's nothing passive uh, about that. Absolutely. So really what we're talking about then is that the movement in whatever form it's going to, uh, you know, uh, evolve into and transform into that it needs to draw on a diverse array of these historical traditions, not only Dr. King and Malcolm X, but also Franz Fanon and this notion of what violence can do when it's harnessed in a revolutionary capacity. Not only that, of course, but all of these various traditions from Fanon to Mumia to Dr. King and all of and, and everything in between. These are the, um, let's call them the, the, the forebears of what uh, this movement could become. And the question then is, how is it going to get there. And I don't think you have the answer and I don't have the answer, but I think that this is really one of the, uh, let's call it the quintessential issues for this movement and for communities of color and for uh, this entire class in the 21st century in the United States. And Fanon wrote and Dr. King wrote and Malcolm wrote and all of them spoke in, ter- in terms of uh, debriefing uh, the public uh, the, reporting to the people about the lessons they were learning 
from their experience in struggle. Uh, that the, these these were not pronouncements from on high, but more in the nature of reports from the front. Well said. I couldn't agree more. Well, with that, I think we're out of time. Um, Glenn Ford, I want to thank you for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Again, listeners, I mean, you heard it here. Glenn is the man. Um, he is the executive editor of Black Agenda Report. Uh, find all of their stuff on their website, blackagendareport.com. You should listen to Black Agenda Radio regularly on uh, the Progressive Radio Network as well. Um, follow the work and support it if you can, because BAR is really one of the best and again for counterpunch and counterpunch radio consider please giving us a positive review on itunes that really helps thanks again for listening um we'll be back next week as always please be safe